Hello and welcome to In Unison, the podcast about new choral music and the conductors, composers, and choristers who create it. We are your hosts. I am Zane Fiala, Artistic Director of the International Orange Chorale of San Francisco. And I'm Giacomo Di Gregoli, a tenor in IOCSF, the Golden Gate Men's Chorus, and the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. And this is... In Unison! <laughs> I like being in unison. Hey everybody, today's episode of In Unison is the final installment in our mini-series of discussions with composers to be featured on IOCSF's upcoming concert program, Freshly Squeezed. The performances will take place on December 4th in Berkeley and December 18th in San Francisco. For more information on those concerts, please visit iocsf.org. So Giacomo and I were reminiscing the other day, and we realized that it has been just about a year since we recorded our first episode of In Unison. I cannot believe how the time has flown, and in the past year we've been so fortunate to have many generous people helping to support the creation of this podcast. We couldn't have made it this far without our generous donors, so today we're giving a shout out to two of Giacomo's friends and alums of the Duke's Men of Yale, Evan Wells and Ramon Esquivel. Thanks so much for the support, guys. We also want to thank all of our listeners. It has been an amazing year, and we're looking forward to many more. Let's keep doing all we can to connect the choral community far and wide. And if you would like to help support In Unison, please visit inunisonpodcast.com donate. Our conversation today is with composer and sound designer Kyle Randall about his composition, When You Are Old a piece he originally wrote for the tenor and bass voices of the Harvard Glee Club, but has since revised into an SATB setting. We also get to hear all about the soundscapes he is creating for an immersive audio storytelling app called Wondery. More about that later. A quick side note for you, Kyle was having some trouble with his microphone in the beginning of this interview, so you may hear some crackling. Don't worry, your headphones aren't broken. And I promise we cleared it up as quickly as we could. Okay, before we get into the conversation with Kyle, let's hear some of his music. Here is the Kyrie movement of his new Gothic Mass, performed by Choral Chameleon. Thank you. 
Okay, joining us today on In Unison is Kyle Randall. Kyle is a professional composer and sound designer specializing in both concert music and music for media. In 2015, he was awarded the prestigious American Prize in Composition and was a finalist for the Morton Gould ASCAP Composition Award. He has worked with and written for prominent groups such as Choral Chameleon and the Harvard Glee Club. He served as composer-in-residence for the Empire City Men's Chorus in New York City and worked with influential conductors including Matthew Oltman, Craig Hella Johnson, and our good friend Vince Peterson. Hi, Vince. <laughs> Kyle received his bachelor's degree from Harvard University and his master's from the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. After completing his master's with David Garner at the conservatory, he was privileged to join the first year of their Technology and Applied Composition program as a one-year post-studies degree student, where he worked with industry leaders to kickstart his career in composing and sound designing for media. He was working on short films, games, and podcasts in San Francisco and Los Angeles before moving to Massachusetts at the beginning of 2020, which is actually where he's from. And he's continued all of that work remotely since then. Kyle, thanks so much for joining us today. We are very excited to chat with you. Thank you both so much. It's so great to be here. I'm a, a fan of the show, so excited to listen to the other episodes soon with everyone else who's on the, on the concert program. Yeah, awesome. Right on. I'm, uh, this is my first opportunity to get to know you, Kyle, which is uh, very exciting. And I'm, I'm excited to be singing your piece in this upcoming concert program. And to help our audience get to know you personally a little bit better, here's an icebreaker. Tell us, Kyle, about an activity or a sport that you have utterly and or comedically failed at. Well, uh, yeah, there are a few. Um, I guess like, hobbies is kind of a good one. Uh, I tend to get really interested in something and then kind of move on after a few months. I'm sure uh, some people are familiar with that kind of thing. Um, so for example, like I really love visual art, um, like everything from sketches to oil paintings. Um, I feel like it kind of goes hand in hand with composing. It's just the visual side of it. Uh, and I love making uh, new things in general. So it's, it's just always something I wanted to do, but I've always been just horrible at it. Uh, like I would draw, draw something and, and people would be like, oh, I don't really know what that is. Um, so anyway, I decided it was time to, time to start getting better or trying to get better. Uh, so I bought all these sketchbooks, nice pencils, oil paints and uh, an easel and uh, got some online instruction videos uh, and jumped in. And for a little while, I really felt like I was getting better learning a lot. It's like, I'm gonna be an artist, um, <laughs> but I, you know, with every with staying focused on a hobby uh within a couple of months moment, uh, within a couple of months i drifted off to the next thing and uh so now i've just got all of these paints and canvases and things sitting around and really i'm not that much better than when i started but, you know <laughs> you know i think the trick there is to start by drawing yurtle the turtle if you've ever <laughs> seen those in the late night things where you just draw a little circle series and things like that uh i can't draw a circle myself so like i i can completely relate <laughs> yeah. i would dive in the exact same way i'd be like i need all the stuff this is the problem my tools are the problem <laughs> <laughs> it's not my talent <laughs> yeah, my... one thing i can draw like a profile of a wolf howling at the moon that's the yeah <laughs> <laughs> My daughter, my four and a half year old daughter is a better artist than I am by far. She draws all kinds of amazing pictures. And I, was, I just look at them and go, wow, that's, I couldn't even draw that. She's better. She's more talented than I am. <laughs> no doubt. <That's... laughs> she's got a great hand for Peppa Pig, for sure. That's that too as well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just a twist on that. Like by the time Mozart was my age, he was dead. 
<laughs> yeah, suck it, Mozart. <laughs> so, Kyle, as I was reading your introduction, uh, it says that you received your bachelor's from Harvard. What was your bachelor's in? Oh, it was okay. So it was in uh, music, um, which it doesn't get any more specific than that at Harvard. Um, but I like to say that I sort of like out of uh, my academic uh, studies at Harvard also majored in music because I was uh, I was singing basically uh, six days a week with um, a combination of they have a university choir which like sings the church services and uh, also with the glee club which is uh, a men's choir there um, and that was just like an amazing musical experience they're they're actually composers like Elliot Carter talks about how he like learned most of uh, his early music education through singing in that group the glee club um, there's really a lot to be said, I think, for just singing like every day for four years uh, and getting exposed to so much repertoire and um, working with, you know, student groups um, on the side and, and all kinds of stuff like that. So music has always been a part of your a part of your life. Yeah, um, from a pretty early age, my uh, my parents are both into music. Um, my dad is especially into it. Um, he was he was a big influence. Um, he's kind of a Renaissance man, so he he developed, uh, among other things, a pretty sophisticated musical taste, uh, mostly just by like exploring things one after the next. Like he started with uh, kind of the rock music of the seventies and and or earlier, and um, and went on up to the the kind of hardcore classical stuff. Um, so some yeah, the, I got a lot of uh, a, a good eclectic musical ex exposure in those early years. When did you, uh, when did you finally realize that you were going to be a composer? I, I really love this question actually, because uh, I just, I love remembering that moment. It's this really special. I'm sure it is for most composers that, that kind of beginning moment. Uh, I have a really strong memory of it. Um, I was sitting at the piano. I was uh, learning piano at the time, practicing for lessons. And I was always really bad at practicing, just like not consistent. Um, I didn't want to work very hard at it. It was kind of lazy. Um, and I was pretty good at figuring things out by ear and muscle memory. So I get to the point where I would remember where the notes were under my fingers pretty quickly for a piece, and then just uh, kind of give up on reading the music at all, which, you know, not, not the kind of thing you want to do if you want to be a good piano student or like have any aspirations of being a concert pianist or anything. Um, but uh, yeah, so I was playing through these pretty simple pieces. And uh, sometimes I would come across one that just really spoke to me for some reason. Maybe it was like in an interesting mode, not that I knew what that was at the time, uh, or it had a cool rhythm to it. And I might not like one part of it, like maybe the ending would go a direction. I, I just was like, oh, it's not as interesting, or um, it would just go in a different direction at some point. And suddenly, uh, it sounds so simple. But I was 10 and I really hadn't considered this before. I realized that there's no reason that the piece had to go the way it was written. Like someone wrote it, so why couldn't I just rewrite it um, and have it go a different way? Again, like it, it seems so obvious, but just hadn't occurred to me. Um, so I started coming up with some different endings and, and then I would start taking the rhythm or that mode and uh, making a, a, just a new song out of it. Um, and since then, it's just been this long and amazing journey of discovery and education and refinement and all these mm. things. 
Wow. That's amazing. Early variations on a theme. That's great. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. out and recomposing and rewriting and revising. That's pretty spectacular. How, um, and it's the only reason they can play the piano now, too. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle, I'm curious. Who were some of your earliest compositional inspirations? I mean, I, I love the story of you kind of playing with these pieces. But when you sat down to actually write your first original pieces, did you, were there composers that were inspiring you where you're like, yeah, I want to be like that person? It's a good question. I mean, I had had a little bit of just like the standard um, musical education of like, here are the big greats, the Beethoven and Bach and all these people. Um, I would say like musically, my influences were, um, again, like very eclectic as I was growing up. So like, you know, uh, 70s progressive rock, like Kansas Kansas and Jeff Rattal, classic and folk rock, Celtic music. Like if you know Battlefield Band, I don't know how well known that is outside of the way people who know about Celtic music world. Um, Billy Joel and Elton John, of course, because they're pianists, um, and like musicals and things. So um, yeah, all kinds of stuff. But from a compositional perspective, it sounds weird, but um, so I remember from a really young age, like super young, being just completely blown away by Yanni and like new age style music, um, which just would like unlock my imagination in this amazing way. And being that young, I would just dance circles around the living room listening to it. And then also, like, later on, uh, really great video game composers of the 90s, like, uh, obviously, Nobuo Uematsu, uh, Final Fantasy, and Koji Kondo, you can't leave out. Um, and again, actually, Uematsu's music, I just realized recently, um, was inspired by a lot of, uh, like, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and their album Tarkus back in the 70s. So so more of the 70s prog rock just coming around and uh, influencing it all. Um, But then as I kind of got more into the concert composition, some big ones were um, Von Williams and his early choral and spring music. Uh, Ravel was a big one. Mendelssohn and and Rachmaninoff. I know he's a little one note, but um, it's a really compelling and well-executed note. So I think underrated. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to talk a little bit, Kyle, about your, your process, right? Because here's, here's the things that are inspiring you and here's sort of some of the folks who um, stood as examples or inspirations for you. Um, Tell us a little bit about, um, you know, here's a question I like to sort of ask composers, and this is sort of the flip side of the beginning of the process. It's the end or perhaps in the middle of it. Who do you go to when you're looking for feedback? Like you've written something and who do you trust to say, like, I've written this thing and what do you think? That's such a good question. I feel like no one asks that. Um, okay, so, I mean, definitely family is, is a big one for me, but it would, originally it would be my parents and then now my wife, um, who has a really good ear and gives really good advice. Um, yeah, probably that. And friends, if they're around, um, sometimes I'll send it like to a conductor or, or something like, or, or um, if I'm not sure about maybe uh, style or idiomatically for an instrument or something like that to, to an actual instrumentalist. But um, yeah, just anyone who will listen and, and give feedback is pretty much everyone has a good perspective um, because, you know, you never, who's going to be, you never know who's going to be listening to the piece. So mm-hmm. everyone's perspective matters. Now, when a conductor such as myself are working on a piece that you've composed, how often do you get the opportunity to work directly with that conductor? Until this last year or so, pretty often. Um, I would usually get like a rehearsal or two to give some feedback and ask questions. Um, 
And sometimes there are opportunities to work more closely earlier in the process. But it's, it's funny, now that you mention it, um, it's two sides of the same coin, right? Like the, the conducting and the composing experience, because um, you're like imagining what's possible and then figuring out what's actually possible, uh, or you're both imagining what's going to happen. So I, I feel like there's room for a lot more collaboration between composers and conductors in bringing things to the stage potentially, as long as everyone's okay with sharing the creative discovery process, right? Yeah, I've had I've had varying experiences with different composers who some just give me a score and say, here you go. Uh, let me know when it's ready for me to hear it and I'll come and, and take a listen. And then they don't even have a ton of f a feedback. They're like, oh, yeah, that sounded great. <laughs> and then other composers who come in and they're like, so, uh, all right, so we need to go ahead and change this. And you got, you're got you not doing this right. And this is this other thing. And they're very specific about exactly how they want to hear it. And I think that I, I like it personally when there's a little bit more of a back and forth and it's kind of like I can turn to the composer and say, I'm feeling this right here. What do you think about, you know, not necessarily changing the music, but interpreting it in this way? And if the composer is willing to kind of have a dialogue about that, that's the experience that I like. What does the ideal relationship between composer and conductor look like for you? Yeah, totally. Um, I think I'm, I'm more on, on your side on this one. Um, it's funny, my, my views on it have changed over time because um, I've, I've always felt that the collaboration between the composer, the conductor, and the musicians, that meeting of different creative minds is where a lot of the magic happens in concert music. And then like the rest of the magic happens actually in the listeners' heads um, as they bring like their own experiences and, and uh, thoughts to bear with the music. Um, but uh, early on in my compositional career, uh, yeah, I, I was a little bit more of the, like, I have this vision and I want it realized closely if possible, which uh, I, I feel like to some extent, like you need a little bit of that to want to compose in the first place because you have to have like, you have to want to craft a piece and bring it into the world in the way that you imagined it. But um, I think it's something that is worth growing out of <laughs> because, uh, well, first of all, I, I guess there are a few things that made it have made the, the difference in how I see it today. One is um, there are tons of incredibly creative people out there and everyone sees things differently. So you can't know what someone else will bring to a piece until they have a chance to actually bring it. Um, and some things may be better or worse, but in a good collaboration, you, that it can help to iron those things out and, and pick up the best ideas the much. Um, the second is probably uh, the idea of a service mindset which is something that's come actually from working in composition for multimedia projects, mostly, um, as opposed to straight concert music. Uh, it's just been invaluable. Um, you learn really quickly when you're hired as a composer or a sound designer for someone else's content that you're providing a service, um, which is something that is not very common, I feel like, in the creative world. Uh, and the tricky thing is because it's a creative service, you can run into tension with that and people do all the time. Um, creative people have a hard time letting go of their vision. So agreeing to make a change that they feel will hurt the final result can be a tough thing to do. Um, but it's something that you lose pretty quickly if, if you want to do well. Um, so that idea of the composer as providing a service to the conductor of the chorus is I think a healthier way to go about it rather than the old romantic idea of like the enshrined composer with the vision that, that can't be changed. Um, 
the third one is actually singing in a chorus. Um, so in singing with lots of choral groups, I've noticed that my favorite type of approach, I think this is really similar to using, um, my favorite type of approach to finding the best way to perform a piece is just intensely collaborative, uh, where everyone feels they can contribute. If they notice something, no one feels shut out. Um, and because I think, uh, well, I think it's just the given that everyone has a lot of value to offer and, and nobody is infallible. Um, it just doesn't make sense to have one person with the ultimate kind of vision, uh, even, even conductors. So, um, and there are so many amazing ideas that just never see the light, light of day if, if people feel they can't bring them up. So I found in groups that I've sung with and conducted that when singers have that, when they feel empowered to bring their own vision to a piece, they'll often also feel more comfortable keeping their performance malleable and, and trying out new ideas with it. Um, but of course it's tricky, you know, a good leader um, also has to, or a, a good conductor also has to manage the job of navigating when it's the right time to entertain ideas versus stay focused and things like that. But um, I, I found I'm happiest when, at least personally, when I'm not in like the pure leadership role and more like in a position where it's okay uh, to raise ideas, concerns, or, or for discussions when they come up. And I usually try to kind of cultivate that culture from that position of if you have an idea, bring it up. But yeah, long way of saying I'm a big fan of collaboration. Let's actually, I'd like to talk a little bit about one of those collaborations because uh, I saw the video premiere for one of your pieces, um, The New Gothic Mass, which was, um, for our listeners, the winner of the American Prize for Choral Composition in 2015. Um, I believe I saw that there was a, the, the debut was in San Francisco or the premiere was in San Francisco, if that right. I feel like I, I recognized a few of the singers. It looked like it was at St. Mark's maybe, or at least the YouTube video, which I believe was the, the original premiere. That's the one, yeah. Um, was pretty spectacular, and I noticed that. The, I mean, it's it's some challenging music, I think, to sing, but fascinating and just exceptionally beautiful. Um, and I want to ask a little bit about that composition, sort of that that process of collaboration as well. Um, but first off, you you mentioned in the notes of that piece in the New Gothic Mass that you'd wanted to write a mass for for some time. Um, and aside from the compositional tradition of writing a mass, why did you feel compelled to write one? Where is this, was this a, a spiritual thing for you? Was it just sort of like everybody has a mass, and so I'm going to do one, and this is an interesting form, or what was it that led you to to writing this new Gothic mass? Yeah, it's um, I can see how that would be uh, kind of a mystery for for people because the mass is such a charged thing in a lot of ways. Um, and you're right, it is it's pretty tricky uh, music, but we'll we'll get to that in a bit, I'm sure. Um, yeah, so for one thing, it's always fun to grapple with like a set form. Um, you get a chance to see what you can do with it and, and compare each moment directly to thousands of other settings. And there's something really exciting about that from a compositional perspective. Um, and like we were talking about before, I really feel like everyone has a, a unique perspective to bring to the table, both in interpreting it and writing. So um, that's why I feel like we should never really feel forbidden to touch an old style. There are different schools of thought about this, but um, there's kind of a a trend of, of feeling like we can't really go back and write in old styles or in things influenced by old styles, like the, the term neo kind of has a little bit of a stigma to it. Um, but, you know, composers today can never really write truly new Baroque music. Um, like it might sound really close, but because we're the products of hundreds of years of history since then, unless you're like following a purely mathematical formula, then we can never divorce ourselves completely from those influences. Um, 
or change the mindset that comes from that, that collective experience. So, um, and the people who wrote Baroque music didn't even think of it as Baroque, right? Like, and which meant something entirely different to the classical composers later who named it. Um, so new Baroque isn't really Baroque music. It's, it's really Baroque inspired music is the closest they can get in a way that that's, at least to me, that's inspiring because it means the whole world of music history is completely open to us today in whatever way we want to use it. Um, but yeah, to go back to the mass, uh, I wanted to write a piece that would kind of serve as a message for um, what I felt was possible and maybe not super common in the choral world at the time, at least in the corner of it that I was seeing. Um, music that is dramatic and, and dark and brooding, but uh, and full of extended harmonies, but still nuanced and uh, refined in its approach to choral writing and texture. And, and it was important to me that it was also deeply authentic, um, which is a tricky one, I think, for um, things that involve religion today, uh, because everyone has a very different relationship to that. But um, to me, it didn't really matter whether it, um, religion was a part of it. It was kind of the idea of the mass in general. Um, so I decided to kind of turn the idea of the mass on its head. Like normally the the Gloria would be really triumphant, but to me, it um, makes just as much sense to sing those words with like an awe or, or a bit of terror. So it was like this very dark, scary Gloria, <laughs> which is kind of weird. And then the Curie is kind of flipped. Um, normally, like, you know, the Curie sections would be polyphonic and the Christe would be homophonic. So because the Curie was made of these big block chords, the Christe takes on this more kind of winding imitative approach. Maybe we can talk a little bit now about another composition, um, one that we are going to be offering um, the premiere in our up upcoming Freshly Squeezed program in December, your piece, When You Were Old. And then you know this one pretty well intimately because you are preparing us for it. This is actually the premiere of a revision of it, essentially, or a rewriting of it, a revoicing of the piece, right? If I remember correctly, When You Are Old uh, was originally written for uh, men's chorus for tenor and bass voices. Isn't that right? That's right. Yeah. And then you made a decision at some point that, uh, you wanted to revoice it into an SATB, uh, arrangement essentially. What, why? <laughs> why SATB? <laughs> why? Yeah. No, yeah. Why, uh, for, well, okay. Two, two questions. One, why did you, why did the poem inspire you to set it as a men's chorus piece first? And then what was the reason that you decided to then turn it into an SATB uh, version as well? It's funny. It's, it's one of those examples of, um, one of those examples of the decision kind of coming from the process. So I, I had written a, a piece a few years earlier, uh, there's a setting of a Shakespeare sonnet called When to the, when to the Sessions. I'm sure lots of people are familiar. And I, I had wanted to do a Shakespeare sonnet after listening to uh, Vaughn Williams' No Longer Mourn for Me, one of his really early works. Um, so I, yeah, I had written that piece and I wanted to do something that was reminiscent of the style of that earlier piece, um, but a little more direct and more straightforward, something that would lend itself well to a bit more of like a folk song arrangement um, because I was writing it for uh, the, the Harvard Glee Club, which does a lot of folk song singing 
I struggled a lot actually with figuring out what text to set for that one. Um, I had come across the Yeats poem a couple of years earlier, I think, uh, and had wanted, been wanting to set it. As for like why the poem stuck with me, uh, it's, as you know, it's really evocative. Uh, I feel like it taps into something that probably a lot of people experience, I, I would assume. That's, um, it was like all the rage back in, in the romantic period of the, the like the bittersweet um, like love in exile thing. But, um, you know, there are just some emotions that, you know, really well as a, as a recent teenager, um, that bittersweet sense of loss or being rejected or ignored. Um, and particularly of holding something that you feel is really true and pure deep down while wearing loneliness, like a, like a shield almost. But yeah, it was something that was pretty easy to tap into. And I'm sure pretty familiar to most young people, unfortunately. So, I mean, the emotional impetus of this piece, I think, you know, your work is known for having really a directness and clarity of expression. I think, um, you know, those of us who sort of read the poem quite literally as we were preparing the piece as singers kind of dove into it and were like, well, what is what is Yeats trying to say here about what it means to get old, right? I mean, are we, are we less beautiful because we're older, because we age, or do we lean into that? And I guess what's interesting to me when you when you think about this piece and you're singing it and you're trying to view it, and by the way, when you're not 22 years old anymore and, <laughs> you know, you actually are on the other side potentially of this defense and, you know, we have, time only really goes one way, you know, you're, some of us are sitting there and being like, well, we are old now and we're not the same people we were. And unlike the, the Shakespeare sonnet where it's like, well, you know, the older you get, the, the, the more beautiful you become. The, the sentiment in this poem also sort of has that sentiment, which is like, you're going to get old, it's going to happen, and yet I will still sort of see you this way thematically. How did you, how do you think about that, the idea of beauty and aging, and how did that um, get incorporated into the soundscape for this piece? Mm, that's a really cool question. I, so first of all, I, I think that um, the narrator or the, the speaker in the, in the poem, I don't think of them as necessarily a reliable narrator um because to me it, it feels like a defense mechanism someone who's been really hurt and um is trying to find comfort and beauty in that moment um that that idea of wearing the, the loneliness as a shield kind of um so they're saying i'm fine uh you know this when you're old you look back and um I, I guess it's to make themselves feel like I was the one that got away or something like that, and then feel comforted in that. Um, but you're right that I, I think there's a, a beauty that emerges in spite of that, in what the real experience of getting old and looking back and, and everything in between is, because um, the narrator is saying, or the speaker is saying, you know, you're beautiful now and you won't be then and then you look back and, and have these regrets but the beauty is actually in i think in the in the the filtering down of the the memories over the years and um i think that's actually why the speaker is using this as a defense mechanism because that they're reaching for that perspective they want the the feeling of okay now it's a lifetime later and i'm not hurt by this anymore i just look back on it fondly and um, wistfully. It's an interesting bookend, too, to another piece that IOC did uh, with uh, the, the Whitaker piece, Go Lovely Rose, which we had some really serious conversations about when we were preparing it as singers, right? Like the old English text 
Go Lovely Rose is all about. Well, you're, you're young and beautiful now. Go for it, baby. You know, like, it's kind of the thrust of that piece. And then this is sort of like the, the flip side of that, which is like, well, you didn't go for it. And, you know, now I'm, you know, I've got some things to say about that when we're old. Um, you know, and we had some, some really rich conversations about that, about like, what is the preciousness of youth, how brief it is. And then this sort of book ended in the other end, which is like, well, we're all, you know, the, the, that rose will fade at some point. And, um, you know, will the beauty and the love still be there? And I have to say the setting that you're doing of the, the or the, the Shakespeare pieces is kind of the full other end of that, um, which we, Zane and I were discussing last night, which is like, nah, you can get old, but you'll always be as beautiful to me as you were when you were young. And I love the sentiment of that. And I love all of these things. And maybe, there you go, Zane, there's our spring concert. It'll be like, you know, getting, <laughs> it's just all, it'll be all about aging. All about the process of being young and beautiful and then becoming old and beautiful, um, which would be an interesting statement maybe. Uh, but no, I love, I love this piece. And I think it's really sparked some, some incredible conversations. And I'm excited to premiere the SATB version in a, in a couple of weeks. It's really, it's really quite, quite something. Thank you. It's it's so cool to hear that it's uh, that it's been bringing up those conversations and things to be a fly on the wall. So, as a singer yourself, who've who's sung in multiple choirs over your life, how much time have the composer? The sorry, how much time have the conductors spent allowing you and your singer cohorts to 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 like dive into a text. How, how often did you get that opportunity? Cause it's something that I want to do a lot when I'm rehearsing IOC in particular, you know, I, I would love to spend a lot of time talking about the text and what it means to the singers. But unfortunately we tend to get bogged down with like, well, we got to make sure we're singing the notes, right. And singing the rhythms, right. And that it goes from the beginning to the end without going out of tune. And, you know, we spent, end up spending the bulk of our time working on the music and then, close to the end of the season, we get some time to dive into the text and talk about, you know, what it means to us or how we're interpreting it. Have you, as, as a singer, have you gotten a lot of opportunities from conductors to do that, to interpret text and to talk about it amongst the ensemble? You know, I think not, not as often as, as would be nice. Um, I remember Jim Marvin, who, who conducted the Glee Club um, for a while, was really amazing. Um, he, he would say things like, okay, now that we're like two weeks away from the performance, we can finally start rehearsing this piece now that we know the music. <laughs> um, so a similar kind of thing of like, there's learning the music, there's interpreting the music, and then there's also interpreting the piece. But uh, yeah, I mean, there were times when, I mean, I, everyone's familiar with this who's in choral singing, when, when you're like, okay, we've already performed this piece a few times now, let me actually like figure out what the text is saying and uh it's yeah it's it's too bad because the combination of text and music is well it i have this a whole other tangent that can go off on what happens when you combine music with something more focused but choral music is amazing in that way in that there is something to focus the the raw musical potential and um yeah it's it's amazing what, what that can do so yeah, I as a conductor myself, I really enjoy that process of discussing the text with the singers because they always, without fail, bring some perspective that I hadn't 
considered or that I hadn't thought of. And it always informs the interpretation of the musical elements, you know, not that the text doesn't have a musical element too, but, you know, the harmonies, the melodies, all the other things that are, are strictly musical, um, they're informed by what the text is saying and how I'm interpreting it and how the singers are interpreting it. And, and it's a just it's an interesting process to to bring everybody together so that we're all of one mind or at least of a related minds about the meaning of the text and what it's uh, saying through the music. So, um, yeah, I mean, as a, as a singer for me, that is absolutely my favorite part of the season. I mean, we're ultimately storytellers at the end of the day, right? And that text is such a great vehicle for. Um, delivering something or delivering an emotion or delivering an impact or delivering the story, which is ultimately what we're here to do, I think. Um, and even the, the, the way that you beautifully um, do text painting or like the, the, the words that you sort of put against it, like murmuring at the end, and you've got these beautiful lush chords that are just mezzo piano. I mean, it's, the, the, it's, it's stunning. And I, I, I love even just analyzing those moments at the intersection of those two things as well, which we do do quite a bit. I feel like that is part of the regular quote unquote rehearsal process. But then, you know, us just sitting in a, you know, drum circle or something, or just, you know, holding hands and having feelings about the text is also like my favorite part. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. I, and I love that idea of um, the choral singers as storytellers. Definitely the, the most uh, powerful moments I've had as a choral singer have been when you can, you can really say, okay, what is, instead of just thinking like, is my technique good and, and things like, or what's the sound of this? It's like, what is exactly the impact of this going to be that I'm doing right now on the audience? And, and how are they going to interpret this in the same way that an actor, I think, would think of it. Um, so yeah, so storytelling is, is really what it comes down to. And so when uh, the final notes of this piece, When You Are Old, are sung and the conductor, myself, cuts the choir off, what is it that you're hoping that the audience takes away? What's the impact at the very end that you're hoping for? Uh, the thing that comes to mind is kind of like a, a sense of peace, almost. Um, maybe kind of a little bit of regret that... Um, for, for whatever reason, but just kind of, uh, I think this piece comes to a gentle close that should be very peaceful, if not comforting necessarily. Peaceful and comforting. I like it. All right. I'll, I'll try to evoke that from the audience <laughs> <laughs> when we get to the end. Kyle, let's talk a little bit about some of the projects that you're working on right now that you're excited about. Um, anything you can share with us? Sure. So um, I don't know if I actually haven't put this in my bio yet, I need to update it. But uh, one thing that I've been doing a lot lately, um, the last few years, is uh, it's been super fulfilling, um, is creating these fully immersive audio stories where uh, you feel like you're in the story, uh, hearing all of the sound effects, and, and then like you might be in the room with these people or out in a field or something. Um, and the music and dialogue and narration all, all work together to kind of in the way that old um, radio plays would work, uh, of just telling a story completely uh, through audio. Um, and these days there's even more that you can, they can really do to, to pull listeners into the story and make it into something really creative. So yeah, it's, it's particularly exciting for me because um, similar to film scoring and, and writing for games and other interactive media and things, uh, I've always loved the way that music and sound uh, and choral music, um, that music and sound can impact and influence the experience of a, of a story. 
plays right into what you were saying about choral music as storytelling. Uh, so I like to think of it as like music you could think of as, as raw, undirected communication. Um, it's got this incredible power to connect us viscerally to an experience in a way that would be maybe impossible through just words or images. Uh, you like you play a piece of music for yourself and instantly you might feel sad or relaxed or pepped up or whatever it might be. Um, and so, and, and also I think it does that by tapping into some fundamentals about how we communicate. So as a sidebar to the sidebar, <laughs> I'm a big fan of linguistics too. And um, the theory that uh, our ability as humans to communicate through language is closely tied to our experience of music or what music even is in the first place. Um, but like it's no coincidence that the pitches that we hear most easily and can distinguish really well are exactly the range of the human voice. Uh, and outside of that range, it gets harder to tell the pitches apart. The, the lower notes have too many overtones, get muddy, the higher notes become sibilants and just sound like S's or SH's or things. Um, so going back, uh, music is really powerful, but it's vague. And if music is raw communication of emotion, vague thoughts, impressions, colors, um, then it, to give that some form of direction in the form of an image or a story told through words or, or sung as lyrics or a little sound design um, can, that can put us in a location and tell us something physical that we can understand, understand is happening, then uh, the experience becomes something else entirely. And I, I think really powerful. Um, so with all of these uh, immersive audio stories, or most immersive podcasts, as, as they usually call them. Um, they're, they're a ton of fun because it's not only multimedia, but the entire production is our field, it's audio. So unlike film where you're like, oh, okay, I'll add on some music to this or something. You're like, okay, well, the person is saying this, I'll, I'll move that phrase a little bit over and now it means something completely different. Um, and I'll, I'll try adding this piece in, change that out, move the piece to come in at this place. and. It, it just affects the entire experience and it's really exciting. So I'm playing around with everything from the timing of individual phrases to the, the sound of the world here around you to the, the music that's driving the whole experience. And uh, because I've been producing so many of them so quickly, it's been kind of like a master class in, in film scoring and editing or, or game scoring or other media scoring. Because uh, every day I'll, I'll be seeing in real time what the exact effect of using different approaches is. Um, or making little tiny changes. So you're so you're writing music uh, to go along with something that's pre, been pre-recorded by another narrator, a storyteller, or are you creating all of this from scratch? I'm just trying to get an idea of like what your role is in the production of these projects. Sure. Yeah. It, it depends. Um, most typical would be someone's written it and um, a voice actor has recorded it, which I may or may not be involved in. Uh, and then a voice actor has recorded it. And uh, then I'll, I'll get the, that audio, do some things to, to clean it up and, and um, kind of place it out on the, on the timeline and then add everything else around that. Um, oh, okay. But I'm also, I've been excited to try out some things that are a little bit more personally driven or um, working with, with writers to make things uh, kind of see how far we can push the format because it's, it's still pretty new. Cool. And where can, uh, where can people find examples of the finished product? Oh yeah. So all of the audio stories are available. Most of them are published through Wondery, which is a, 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 which is a podcast publishing company. 
Um, and they also, they're involved with making the, the podcasts. Uh, so anything um, that they produce is available anywhere that, uh, that you can listen to podcasts. Um, some of the big ones have been uh, Little Stories Everywhere, which is these very um, super imaginative and, and fun children's stories. And uh, probably the best known one is Business Wars, which is uh, really about the stories of the people behind the, the corporations that we all know and that have such a big impact on our lives. Um, but there's a little bit of everything on there. And uh, there should be more exciting things coming in this next year and on. Uh, and yeah, we'll see what kinds of personal projects I can, I can get going to. Kyle, this has been a wonderful conversation. I, where, where can folks find you if they want to follow along online? Oh, yeah. So uh, kylerandall.com is the place. Um, Randall has a weird spelling, so it's R-A-N-D-A-L-L. Uh, well, not weird, but there are a lot of different spellings. Um, I'm going to be doing a redesign soon of that, and it'll tie everything together. But you can also find uh, my work on YouTube and SoundCloud. And um, all of, again, all of the audio stories are, are published wherever you can listen to podcasts if anyone wants to go find those. Awesome. And we'll, of course, put links to all of those things in our show notes, as we always do. Um, and uh, as we've been talking about when you are old, those per those performances of the uh, premiere of the SATB revision of the piece will happen on December 4th in Berkeley and December 18th in San Francisco. And we're going to live stream the concert in San Francisco as well. So folks who are not in the area will have the opportunity to uh, to tune in or even folks who are in the area but just are not quite ready to go out to a performance in person uh, we respect that and so we're gonna live stream for those folks as well but uh, yeah this has been it's always fun this podcast has been such a great experience for me and for Giacomo I'm sure as well but just to indeed to get into the heads of of people who are involved with creating the same type of art that we're creating with the choruses that we're in and to understand what motivates you and to understand what inspires you. And because I think that the more we know about the people who are doing the same thing that we are, the more uh, informed we're going to be and the more productive. The richer we'll be. the output. Yeah, yeah, the richer the output. Yeah, exactly. That's a great way to put it. So, so we thank you for your time, Kyle, and for sharing your thoughts and getting into into all this uh, excellent content today. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you again soon about your upcoming projects, or maybe we can have an episode where we talk all about this uh, immersive storytelling stuff, because that sounds pretty fascinating to me. We might, we might have to get into that a little bit more deeply. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, thank you. I, it's, it's a, a gem of a show. I, uh, like I said, I'm a, I'm a fan and um, I really think it's, uh, this, these kinds of conversations are, at least for, for me as a composer, always super, um, they give all kinds of inspiration and, and insight into how other people are thinking about things. So yeah, keep, keep doing the great stuff. <laughs> we hope that it does the same for our audience. Well, thanks for joining us today and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. We're going to go ahead and finish off today's episode with the Harvard Glee Club performing the original TTBB setting of When You Are Old, so that hopefully you can compare notes when you come to the IOCSF concert this season. We also want to, again, thank all of our listeners for a year of support. We are so excited to be a part of the choral community and to be helping amplify the many amazing voices within it. Here is When You Are Old. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison podcast. 
Be sure to check out episode extras and subscribe at inunisonpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social media at inunisonpod. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think. Concert Volunteers coordinated by Chorus Dolores, who has memorized all the Middle English verses to Britain's Ceremony of Carols. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our transcripts have been diligently edited by IOCSF member and friend of the pod, Fausto Daus. And our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Please be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.